0: Morning, glory and evening, grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Thank you so much for listening. It's the favorite hour of the week for many people. It's a time for the Hillsdale Dialogue, my weekly conversation with Dr. Larry on, president of Hillsdale College, or one of his colleagues on some great work or person of the Western civilization that has fallen perhaps a little bit out of focus that we need to bring back to the table the last couple of weeks and for the next couple of weeks, we've been talking about Winston Spencer Churchill because it is now uh, crucial that leaders step forward in the mold of Churchill and uh, try to accomplish what he did, which is to change the course of events from where they were headed otherwise. Dr. Larry Arn, always a pleasure. Thank you for joining me. Great to be here. Everyone can get every single Hillsdale Dialogue at www.hillsdale.edu or then go to hughforhillsdale.com or there's a button at hughhewitt.com that says Hillsdale Dialogues, And there are scores of them now. And you can build your homeschooling curriculum around them or you can simply enjoy them. And I hope you had a chance to meet some of those students that were up on your campus this past week, Larry Arn. I saw one coming out of the airport in Phoenix on Sunday night beaming at the week that you had put together for them.
1: Well, we were swarming with them. And they're, they're uh, smart and good-looking, and they giggle when you talk to them. And they giggle.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, are they just nervous at the idea that you might ask them for, you know, quote the ethics to me in Greek or something?
1: That's it. That's it. You know, today, the Marine Corps is on campus today in force. Uh, they recruit here, and they tell me that without regard to size of the 70 schools that, that they have in this district, they get six from Hillsdale for every one they get from every other. And wow. and they said uh, they said uh, so today I just these two recruiters and they said these kids they stand up straight and they look you in the eye and I don't just mean the ones interested in the Marine Corps he says how does that happen and I said you know they just show up here I don't know
0: <laughs> yeah, I, speaking of just showing up there uh, this week I met a fellow who I want you to investigate his website pacificbach dot com he is reintroducing Bach, whom he calls the greatest composer to the world. He, he conducted the New, New York Philharmonic, the, um, uh, the Boston Symphony, the Alabama Symphony, and now he's based on the West Coast, reintroducing people to Bach, the greatest musician and the greatest composer of all time, he alleges, because Bach is himself a great Christian artist whose work has been eclipsed by the modern culture. And it occurred to me, I wonder, does Hillsdale spend much time on classical music?
1: Mm, well, a third of our student body... Is involved in music somehow or another and uh, that's a big number and the orchestra has got 80 pieces and they mostly play classical and a lot of Bach
0: see I didn't know this about Bach that his music was about angels demons faith and victory that he was a deeply devout man and that uh, he, he was relatively underappreciated for a hundred years. It's got a lot to say about genius. We'll have to cover that in the future. It
1: yeah, Bach said that every piece that he had ever composed was for the glory of Jesus Christ.
0: And that's why he goes, the Pacific Bach Project performs at various places, and, and I'm going uh, to continue to push it, but go look at it, pacificbach.com. Now, Dr. Arndt, last week when we left off on our Churchill study, Ted Cruz had not begun his filibuster. And and, and this filibuster is, is interesting in American parliamentary history. Uh, it is associated with bad things, and Ted Cruz was trying to do a good thing. But did the British Parliament allow for such things?
1: No, but, uh, you know, we're talking about Churchill. Churchill and the greatest of the British believed that the heart of the British Constitution was the activity in the House of Commons, and Churchill always protested whenever that was truncated full debate get as much out as possible and he followed that rule when he was prime minister he begins
0: this amazing parliamentary career in 1901 and i and if you could explain to the audience how closely the the british public cared about those debates and how they were dickens got his start transcribing them and putting them out and it is not uncommon even for an illiterate man to understand what was going on in the house
1: well, it was, you know, it was, Churchill writes that the British people used to follow politics the, way, the, the same way they followed the sports pages. And the form of the parliamentarians was known to them, and they would be greeted on the street with heckles or cheers about things they had said on the floor of the House of Commons. And the British people are today an unusually great newspaper reading uh, public. And back in those days, the major, the four big London dailies, would would print detailed accounts of the debates in the House of Commons every day.
0: You know, in a shameful episode not long ago, the great General David Petraeus was chased by a group of just rowdy, Uh, uh, you know, the uh, Occupy movement types at NYU. How were the British parliamentarians in a time not of labor strife? Because I understand that when labor strife broke out, Great Britain was as pugilistic and dangerous as any. And the suffragettes used to harry Winston Churchill. But generally speaking, when Churchill would move about the streets after a great debate, were they cordially received or were they catcalled?
1: Uh, Both, of course. And, uh, you know, the at its best, and the House of Commons is not what it used to be because we live in the bureaucratic age, and so much in government takes place outside the popular branches. A crisis, in my opinion, uh, they they tended to abuse each other a lot, but eloquently, <laughs> and so <laughs> it was it was much more agreeable. Uh, the the uh, like uh, Churchill's father gave a great speech about the great Gladstone, who it was in the paper had invited some guys over, some working men, to watch him chop down a tree, which was his habit, his exercise. And he felled this mighty tree, and he gave the men, the newspaper article said, chips from the tree that he had felled. And so Lord Randolph Churchill turns this into a famous, and really you can look it up on the Internet, called the Chips Speech. And it, it, it goes like this, he says, and this is, remember, what the Great Gladstone has to offer the British working man chips, <laughs> and then he just theme it just goes on and on and on, right well, that was the and you know in the in the Irish Home Rule debate in eighteen eighty six, I think it was uh Churchill's father took part, and the great Joe Chamberlain, father of Neville Chamberlain, took part, and Gladstone's government was broken, and Churchill trained himself for the House of Commons by memorizing many of those speeches and then writing his own and walking up and down and giving it
0: wow he takes his seat in 1901 and there is a tradition the maiden speech uh on what did he uh orate
1: well he was a hero from the south african war because he escaped and saved an armored train and he spoke about the war and in the speech he he uh he he said this phrase, which caused a stir. the The war was still going on, and uh, he said, "If I were a Boer fighting in the field, and if I were a Boer, I should be fighting in the field." And then he goes on, and he's calling for a policy of winning the war and then being generous, which was a theme with him all his life. And of course, that raised a firestorm, and uh, but it was a very successful speech. And they're always answered by a senior politician, and several of the leaders of the House stood up and said good words about him and about his father, although they, many of them had opposed his father with great vigor and effect when his father was alive.
0: You know, it, uh, Dr. Arndt, pause and come forward to the events of this week in Ted Cruz's filibuster. It is interesting whether or not people like your speeches. If your speeches matter, then you matter. It's, yeah. It is a good thing to be controversial.
1: In the uh, there's a great film made by Ridley Scott called The Gathering Storm about Churchill, and it shows with great effect. It's an hour and 20 minutes long, and everybody should watch it. And it shows Churchill in the 30s, which I guess we're going to talk about next week. And there was a time in Churchill's life, and it was really the only time, when people didn't crowd in when they knew he was going to speak. And then they began to gather again. And he he gained power because he started getting information and opinion started turning his way, and people would flood in. And maybe I told this story last week, but I'll tell it again. And then when he finished, they would flood out. And the speaker right after him, in one of his great speeches about Baldwin and rearmament and the air power in Germany, they were flowing out. And uh, this man's accusing Churchill of, of pronouncing a jeremiad—that is, a dark speech about the future. And he said, "So ends the last chapter of the last book of Jeremiah." And then somebody called out, "Followed, oddly enough, by Exodus." <laughs>
0: <laughs> you did tell it, but it's worth twice. Now, now we we're going to cover then today, 1901, through his exile from the last government in which he was a minister until he returned as first Lord of the Admiralty, which is what, 32, 33.
1: Well, he, he he returned in 39, and the government, the last government of which he was part, broke up in April of 1929.
0: 29, and so so it's we've got to cover 28 years. Would you give the overview in uh, in four, Well, let's not. Let's come back in 1901. Which party is he a member of?
1: He's a member of the Conservative Party.
0: And so the Conservative Party represents the great landed interests. His father was a great conservative. Disraeli was the great conservative. And Winston Churchill begins his career, but it does not always stand. He ends his career as a conservative. But in between, we come back. We'll talk about what happens. Don't go anywhere, America, except to Hugh for Hillsdale.com to get all of the Hillsdale dialogue. This is part three of our five-part series on Winston Churchill. The years of his awakening as a political force in Great Britain, 1901 to 1929. Don't go anywhere. With Dr. Larry Arn. I will return to the Hillsdale Dialogues on the Hugh Hewitt Show. 21 minutes after the hour, America, it's Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn, President of Hillsdale College. It's our weekly Hillsdale Dialogue, and all of them, every single minute of the Hillsdale Dialogues, whether with Dr. Arne or one of his colleagues that we have hosted on the program from the beginning of this year to this moment, are available in order beginning with the Iliad, uh, at hughforhillsdale.com or hillsdale.edu. If you go to hillsdale.edu, you can also sign up for Imprimus, the speech digest heard round the world. How many people are now receiving a free copy of Imprimus each month, Larry Arn?
1: Uh, north of 2.7 million, plus then another discreet 300 and some thousand. No, it's more than that. It might be 600 and some thousand. Well, there's 2 million who get it by email, but if you if you... Eliminate the overlap, you get something over $3 million.
0: That is remarkable. And also, a new Hillsdale course on economics has launched. I think you gave the first lecture in that as well, also available at Hillsdale.edu. You're flooding the zone with content.
1: Yeah, well, it, people need to know, and it's fun to know, and uh, so why not learn? Do your trustees ever say to you, why are you giving it all away? Uh, no, we, we always have believed that you know, le- learning is free in this sense, Nobody can do it for you. And the ideas that we know and the things that we know, they don't belong to us. We just happen to be engaged in the activity of knowing them. And so we're glad to share them. And people who want to learn them really intensely, that costs a lot of money because we have to pay our faculty and people got to eat while they're here and stuff like that. And although we keep it cheap compared to our peers, the people who want to come here and have attention of very learned people in classes of 15 to 25 they pay, but, you know, we give them all the scholarships we can afford.
0: Yeah, you know, Larry, as I was coming out of the Phoenix Sky Harbor Airport and I met the young man who had gone to uh, the Phoenix Jesuit High School and he was with his mother and father and, the, and I talked with him for a while because I'd met him a week before. Just by coincidence, I saw him and debriefed him on his trip and his mother, whom I not met, stopped and said, it is such a wonderful place. It is so inspiring. And I wonder if you sense that you are in some kind of a liftoff stage at Hillsdale.
1: Well, we've grown a lot, and, you know, we're, right now we're busy remaking our conference center and hotel because we get, you know, I think it's north of 6,000 visitors in this little place a year, and we'd have more if we had more room. So, yeah, and, and you know, there's a crisis in the nation, and the college studies things that lead you to understand that crisis better and, 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 and more deeply, and people want to know that, and they're just flocking to the place.
0: You need a chapel.
1: Well, that's right. You know, and there's uh, thank you, and there's interest <laughs> in that from somebody. And if anybody wants to help that somebody, that, that somebody hasn't promised yet. But we do very much need a chapel, and, and we mean to build one. How will you design a chapel?
0: Who would design a chapel? That would be quite the difficult, under- I mean, you have a beautiful campus, and people who haven't been there ought to just go out of their way to see it. But it would be an interesting thing.
1: Yeah. To- well, we're looking for, we're talking to a fellow a uh, famous uh, sacred building designer, and uh, and we're gonna we're we're gonna get up three or four others, and we're getting ready to do some drawings.
0: Can I push along your your would be donor of the chapel? or any way you want me to talk to him or her and push them along?
1: Well, they you don't. Know, by the way, I may. They don't. They don't need any. They came to us. Oh, good, you know, mostly good. That's what happens. People love, right? You know, I I do what I do because I love it. You do what you do because you love it. People who love the same, same thing kind of come along, thank God for it, and them. And, and this person is not needing pushing right now, but the time may come, and this person I have, knows who you are
0: here. Well, well we, because they need a chapel. They just absolutely need a chapel. Then they need that chair of rhetoric in which to cabin and imprison Dr. Arne. Uh, it's sort of like a timeout zone for, for President Arn when he's mean to his host. All right, back to Churchill. Uh, very quickly, because I get confused, and I've read all the biographies. From 1901 to 1929, he crosses and recrosses the line. Would you explain to people what that means and how portentous it is for a career?
1: Well, the House of Commons, you come into court, you come down an aisleway, and in front of you is the Speaker, and on the left is the majority, the government party, and on the right is the opposition, and there's just two choices. And you come in and you bow, and you turn one way or the other, and there isn't any place to sit in the middle. So in 1904, Churchill crossed over to the Liberals, and then in nineteen twenty four, effectively, in the middle of the year, but he began in twenty two, he crossed back to the conservatives because the liberals made their first affiliation with the Labor or Socialist Party and he would not serve with them.
0: Now these are these are events which would have a parallel with a Republican becoming a Democrat or a Democrat becoming a Republican but you you might be able to get away with that. For example, the great senator from Alabama, Richard Shelby, did that. Was a yeah. Democrat and became a Republican and a respected Republican. But he yeah, couldn't go back right. to being a Democrat. That's hard.
1: Yeah, Phil Graham, and that's hard. And it's it's harder in Britain because you know you have to be welcomed by the other party because there's a fair amount of central control. And it's not complete of who gets a seat. You know and. Constituencies are pressed to adopt this person or that, and so if they want to take your seat away, and Stanley Baldwin in thirty-six and seven and eight tried to take Churchill's seat away, then then they can hurt you. And so there's a fair amount of party discipline there, and and uh, so it's it's as Churchill said once, it's very difficult to rat r a t But I've managed also to re (laughs) (laughs) Now, is it an admirable thing that he did? Well, I think so. I mean, this period we're talking about divided into three. In the first decade Churchill was in Parliament, he's worried about the classes. And he's for, and you know, he believes that the aristocracy has used its political power in the 19th century to transfer wealth from the poor to themselves. And that time is coming to an end. He calls himself a Tory Democrat in the beginning and then a liberal. And he favors the social welfare state of a kind, and he fights for that. He's a radical. And then in in 1911, uh, he gets worried about war. He finds out things about what the Germans are doing. And so he becomes first lord of the Admiralty, and he gets the Admiralty ready for the war. Then in 1914, the the Great War comes. He devises with others a innovative strategy to go around the trenches to save slaughter, In this time he also invents the tank or starts the experiments that invented it, and that goes to naught and, and is a disaster, and Churchill bears the blame for it. Then for about a year, he goes to the trenches and fights as a lieutenant, uh, as a major, sorry, as a major. Then he comes back, and these of munitions That it's the period after the war, he's Secretary of State for War, and then Secretary of State for the Colonies. Then in 1922, the the Liberal government falls. They join with the Socialists. Churchill leaves them. And then in a surprise, Stanley Baldwin, the conservative Prime Minister, asks Churchill to be the Chancellor of the Exchequer, which is the second most important job in Britain, and it's more than being Secretary of the Treasury over here. And he did that for five years in the 20s. And he, he did a lot of things. And no one in British history has ever been Chancellor long enough to give five annual budgets without being becoming prime minister. Churchill looked like he was going to be the exception. But then, when he was 65 years old, he became prime minister. We come back,
0: we're going to talk about each of those jobs at least briefly, and especially his time in the trenches, uh, and especially his relationship with Ireland. All incredibly important things with Dr. Larry Arne. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue. Stay tuned on The Hugh Hewitt Show. 34 minutes after the Hour America, it's Hugh Hewitt. Our weekly Hillsdale Dialogue uh, with Dr. Larry Arne, president of Hillsdale College, or one of his colleagues, for the last two weeks, this week and the next two weeks, we've been focused on Winston Churchill as we're at a period in time in American history of a crisis of leadership with new leaders emerging and others being discovered not to be leaders at all. It's useful to study the greatest leader of the 20th century, no doubt, Winston Spencer Churchill. And for a period of time from 1901 to 1929, he served in a dizzying array of capacities, was his exile from government in two different parties and five different jobs, including a stint in the trenches. For a moment, let's go to, to Gallipoli and, and the fiasco that was the Dardanelles, uh, because this is something even uh, some American children will remember, because he, it, it's fallen. The World War I is not much known, but if they know anything, they'll know that Churchill screwed up the Dardanelles, and that's not really fair.
1: Well, I don't think so. Churchill believed that modern weapons were making war terrible in a way that threatened civilization itself uh, a logical problem he thought we are the same kind of creature we've always been but now we've got this immense power and so when the trenches formed churchill hated them and began to look for a way around and or through and that's why he got to work on the tank and there were two ways because the trenches basically took up western europe and there wasn't any way to make a flanking maneuver And so what Churchill did was that you could go north and east through the Baltic, to an island off Germany called Borkum. That was one plan. He liked that the best. Or you could go south and through the Mediterranean all the way to Istanbul and through the Straits of Marmara, flanked on the left-hand or westward side by the Dardanelles Peninsula, and then into the Black Sea to make open communication with Russia and get behind the Germans. And so this plan was adopted, and it was not carried through. Effectively, what they managed to do was create a whole new set of trenches, this time several thousand miles away, sure. and many people died, and they never got the Navy through, and they never took the Dardanelles Peninsula. And, and Churchill bore the blame for that. Now, and my argument is, and it's an argument, uh people who disagree is that Churchill Churchill himself said he made a mistake and the mistake he made which he corrected when he became prime minister in 1940 was that he took responsibility for it but he didn't have the authority to see it through he commanded as first order of the admiralty one more day of naval attack and the admiral refused and he went to the prime minister Asquith and said order him and the prime minister refused and we now know, Churchill couldn't have known this at the time, that the Turks were basically out of shells. Another day would likely have been successful. And then Lord Kitchener, the head of the army, kept promising soldiers, and they kept coming too late. And there's a story that they arrived in a place called Suvla Bay, and they spent the day bathing. There's photographs of the troops in the sea and on, this, on the beach. And some scouts had gone up and said, We better get up those heights because we'll never take them if we don't take them now when they're unoccupied. And he decided to do it the next day. And then a forced march Turkish troop with Kemal Ataturk, uh, uh, you know, the great Ataturk, the great founder of modern Turkey, was there and in authority. And they occupied those heights, and the British and the Australians and the New Zealanders never took it. And many people died trying. Churchill bore the blame for that. And there are two main lessons I draw from it. One was, you have to understand why he was advocating it. Because, you know, my wife's grandfather fought in all three battles of Ypres, Hmm. and, you know, in the Somme, and that just about as brutal and terrible a form of warfare as ever there has been and months and months of years of living in squalor and the british lost almost a million dead wow and he was never the same man after that and churchill thought that is crippling to a liberal society you have to fight a find a way to fight your war so that doesn't happen and you know i you know i believe the United States is weaker now relative to the threats, and we should be making a strategy. And it should, it should be leverage. We should do the few things that give us the maximum leverage, and, and therefore punish our enemies while we get stronger. And, and we, we, we have a way of chasing about the world because we think we have infinite power. Churchill was very against that kind of thing.
0: When we come back from break, we'll talk more about what happened after the Dardanelles failed. And we'll talk about Ireland and his career in the Middle East all in eight minutes because we've got to be ready to do the 30s next week. Dr. Larry Arnn is my guest. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue. Churchill is the subject that is inexhaustible, but we will exhaust it for this week on the next segment. Stay tuned to the Hugh Hewitt Show. (laughs) 44 minutes after the Iron it's Hugh Hewitt, all of the Hillsdale Dialogues in which I'm engaged right now with Dr. Larry Arnn and engaged with him or his colleagues on the faculty and staff of Hillsdale College are available at hillsdale.edu or... Straight to Hugh for Hillsdale.com. dot com or there's a button at hughhewitt dot com. Doctor, and I don't think I told you this, but in the uh, two plus years I worked with Richard Nixon in 78, 79 and eighty as uh, as a young editorial assistant, ghostwriter, uh, we never talked about Watergate except once in his uh, Foley Square office. He began to say something about it. He said, "You know about Watergate?" I have always and then he stopped and he said, "Never mind." And we looked forward. And I mm-hmm. I noted about it just wouldn't do it. Wouldn't look backwards. Uh, his great failing, his great crippling failing. But I get the sense that Churchill did not attempt to even the score on the Dardanelles throughout his long career. Am I wrong about that? Well, Churchill wrote
1: a beautiful, very important six-volume work about that. (laughs) And, you know, it's the world crisis. It's the first thing I ever read by Winston Churchill, and I love it still today. So Churchill wish to get even on the argument but churchill was not a vindictive man in politics and uh and he always thought politic you know in a, in a free country right where you're not going to kill your opponents then you should beat them but you should also try to make a friendship uh, with them Around the things that are essential to the country, he was always seeking to do that.
0: You know, I, th- I think I'm saying the same thing. Nixon wrote Rn his memoir, and he detailed Watergate extensively, but he did not dwell on it, did not obsess on it, and did not try to even the score after it was over. Now, let me ask you about the Admiralty at the beginning of the war because it was also famously ready for when the war began.
1: Yeah, and you know they and and you know it was it, Ch- Churchill was a hard driver, and they happened to be on maneuver in august 1914 when the war broke out and that means everybody was together and they had plans to get together in a hurry and those plans were accelerated by the fact that these big maneuvers were going on and so the fleet was ready and it was safe and that mattered so much because the german army if it could get ashore in britain would simply roll the place up and so britain's fundamental safety depended on that and, and you know, the airplane changed that by the Second World War. Now Now it depended on two things. But what they weren't able to do, and Churchill was trying desperately to do in the First World War, was make the Navy a vital offensive force. And that's what Nelson had done to Napoleon. See, he broke Napoleon by starving him. And they, you know, the way the British were the catalyst to defeat Napoleon was they choked him off from large... You know, he went down and conquered Egypt, and he couldn't get back with his stuff, anyway. And and uh, and so... And then they started a campaign in the, in the Iberian Peninsula in Spain and Portugal, where it was hard for Napoleon to get to, and they bled him for a while. And only then did they come over and fight in France. And so that naval strategy, Churchill believed, was native to britain and a cheaper way to win a war than slogging it out on land and they weren't able to make that work although if the dardanelles had worked that would have been such a thing
0: the other amazing thing about these years both before and after the war secretary of war secretary of the colonies chancellor of the exchequer vast reaches of the continent he, he grew up on a horse in india in the sudan he, he was he went everywhere did everything He was well-equipped to think in strategic terms. Not a lot of people are, Larry Arn.
1: Yeah, and, you know, he he, 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 I'll just tell you, it's just breathtaking, the scope of the man. He wrote 50 books, and, uh, you know, it's just crazy. And, uh, like, uh, his life was such a thing that he was captured in South Africa, and he got the idea, because he was somewhere in the vicinity, that he had been captured by a man named Louis Botha later president of South Africa. And it was later proved that that was not who captured him. But Churchill wouldn't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, some ordinary person captured me. That can't be.
0: Uh, two minutes, though. Do tell us about the years as Chancellor of the Exchequer, because, again, as I recall, this was not where his gifts were most pronounced.
1: Well, I don't agree with that. Um, <laughs> I, I think uh, I Churchill was a tax-cutter, and Churchill was a social welfare guy, but with a practical bent. He was interested in security for the poor and the unfortunate, but he didn't want them to be drones. And so he wanted practical schemes that could be afforded and that were not a disincentive to work. And so you see him doing all that in the 20s, and he was very skillful at it. Then, what was he worst at? If with, with
0: a minute to go, up until the time he went into exile, what was he least equipped to do?
1: Uh, sit idle. <laughs> you know, he was. He was. You know, he was extremely active in administration.
0: Was he a good man in the trenches? Was he a good commander?
1: Oh, it was a hoot, and the and the men loved him. And so, although he hated trench warfare. He would go out at night in the trenches, and they would criticize him for talking in too loud a voice. Shhh, you know. And then, and then he would, he would, they would duck, and he would say "And too loudly, no use doing that, the bullet has already gone. And the Germans could hear him. And he was, he, they, they, he was extremely careful for the welfare of his men, and he had incredible nerve in battle. And although they hated him, a politician, when he showed up to command, within a month they just thought, wow, what a guy.
0: Well, what a guy indeed. When we come back, though, what a guy had a wilderness ahead of him. And next week, we're going to talk about the wilderness here as perhaps the most famous period of political exile in modern times for the man who would emerge from it as the greatest leader of the free world that we've ever seen. Larry Arne, president of Hillsdale College. Thank you, hillsdale.edu. For all of the Hillsdale Dialogues, go to Hugh for Hillsdale or right at HughHewitt.com. There's a button for them. Listen from the start to the end. You'll be happy you did. Stay tuned.